Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Uncomfortable Silence. Today, we have Alexis Bonamont joining us to discuss her own experiences of growing up with parents in addiction within her household and how that affected her as a child and how she then uh, deal, has dealt with these issues along her path when she herself is a professional dealing with young people. And also, we're going to touch on bullying, which is something that she has her own experience with and that she's going to share some of the things that she's learned. So welcome, Hi. Alexis. Thank you. Um, so yes, I did grow up in, so originally I was born into a single family household with my mother, who was a teen mom. She had um, my sister at 16, had me at 18. She has, she's passed now, but she had bipolar two and addiction issues from mostly prescription drugs, which in the 2000s were safe, right? Um, couldn't get addicted to them is what they said, and they were highly addictive. Um, so that was very challenging. She met my stepfather when I was five, and he actually played for the New England Patriots. Um, he's a speaker as well, and um, he played for the Patriots as well as the Steelers. And he had a long trial with addiction and substance abuse. So I grew up in, taught in originally like apartments. We moved a lot. I actually went to 13 schools, three high schools in all of my childhood up to high school graduation. And, you know, overnight we went from living in Taunton, Fall River, New Bedford, Providence, moving around a lot to moving to North Attleboro, which is a very cookie cutter town. Um, I was very grateful. Um, I remember moving there and like, you know, you have all these families and everything looks so uniform and like normal. And it's like, it was very weird. It was a sh like a culture shock for me. Um, and, you know, no one even realized like my parents were addicts. No one knew that my parents had mental health issues. Um, we were just normal until like we weren't until it got so out of hand that it was literally on the news. Um, so it went from everyone, all the kids wanting to come over and be friends with me. I was the new girl. Like it was good. I was in second grade to fifth grade. Fast forward, the addiction got so out of hand that um, my dad, my stepfather was arrested and it was on the news. And suddenly no one was allowed to come to my house. And I was a bad influence because of who my parents were and what they were doing. And um, I remember like people being like, yeah, like my mom doesn't want me to go to your house because like of your dad and, oh, you can't come here either because they think like you're a bad influence because you're growing up around that. And I've never once taken drugs <laughs> like to this day. So it's kind of like you go from being judged before you even given a chance to prove yourself. And, um, it was very difficult, very difficult growing up in that. So how did you survive with all those moves through schools? Like, how did you keep your own base at least solid enough? You're obviously very articulate. You were able to work through it. So there's some, a lot of inner strength in there. How were you able to work through that through the school years? So through the school years, especially when I was little, um, kindergarten, first grade, um, I didn't even notice. I didn't even like, it was just normal. Like you're, I, it's funny. Cause I often say there was no difference between me and a military kid when it comes to the moves itself. Like when you're that little, it's what, you know, not like normal to or person to a person is very different. Right. So like a military kid, they move every year or every six months or whatever. I, there was no difference, but what really became different was once I moved to North Attleboro and I, that was probably the hardest move, the most stable move. Like we weren't in an apartment. We were in a home that my stepfather owned and we were there for a long time. And that was probably the hardest one because I didn't know my biological father and I grew up in cities. So 
saying you don't know your dad to somebody that's growing up like you, the single mom and like the mom who works or who's also dealing with the same type of stuff, like you're the norm. It was when I went to North Attleboro that I realized that is not normal. Like this is not normal. This is not how families are. People know who their fathers are and people like know like their parents get up and they go to work and they don't sleep all day and they don't drink and they're not like it was until I moved to North Attleboro that I realized my life is not normal. Like that's when I realized it. And it was the community and people often say like how did you come out a different way? And it's, I saw it different. For the first time in my life, I saw people get up and go to work. And I saw parents show up to games. And I saw parents show up to parent-teacher conferences. And that was very foreign to me. I didn't see that growing, like, at a young, young age. So seeing it for the first time at seven, it was kind of like, okay, this is, okay, all right. Oh, your parents are married? Wait, parents are married? Oh, that's weird. Um like, so you, you start seeing that things aren't normal. And it's funny. Cause I talk as like, when I talk to adults who grew up similar, they're like, I didn't realize until college because that was the first time I saw normal. And it's funny, like when you're in your environment and like, you often hear the term product of your environment, a lot of people cycles, right? So like if your mom, like, I, I'll never forget this. Um, I went to New Bedford High for a whole six months. It was one of the three high schools I attended. And I attended my first half at North Attleboro freshman year, my second half at New Bedford. And I had a teacher say to me, you know, your mom's a teen mom. And at this point, I'm in foster care living with family. And the teacher said, technically, Alexis, you're not supposed to graduate high school. Technically, Alexis, you're supposed to be a teen mom and drop out of high school. Statistically speaking, of course, you don't know your dad. Oh, you're like more likely to become a drug addict and an alcoholic and fall into those footsteps because it is the repeated cycles of becoming a product of your environment. And I think that is the hardest thing. And I see this in even like my position at the school. There's some kids that are going there who have very hard lives they're not worried so much about grasping the math or the English. They're grasping what mood is my mom and dad going to be in when I come home? Like yeah. if they're like, you have kids coming in and out of foster care. You have kids who are reacclimating because the whole, the whole process is reunification. So it's your, some of these kids have a lot of baggage. It's not just about academics. It's about how they're going to survive the day, if you will. Yeah, I think one of the things about growing, because I grew up, I was born around here, and then we had a challenge that made I was no longer normal. And growing up in uh, around here is just, you learn as, as you get older, but in same in North Attleboro, probably, probably similar towns that a lot of it, those families fake it too. Like you, oh, yeah. you realize like eventually that everyone had uh, the problems, but they all put on a fake uh our house is perfect and then they compete with each other to everyone's house is perfect but when you're at that young age you don't realize that everybody has problems you just think you're Absolutely. the only one so you almost feel isolated in the school or at least I did I felt extremely isolated in school because I felt like nobody understood what I was going through and the truth was that they really didn't but instead of learning of ways to deal with that I just got hung up on being like I'm I'm a victim in this situation I'm the only one dealing with that and that was really challenging um and I I get along when I got to college playing basketball most of my teammates were uh city type kids with different backgrounds and I got so much perspective from them because they had uh, a million times harder childhoods than I ever did but I always thought mine was the toughest just because of where I was from it's all relative right because at your young age you're not going to have any understanding of it. I mean, no one's ever explained this to you, nor at that age are you supposed to understand it. And I, I think um, one of the biggest problems and why we call our, our program the uncomfortable silence is because the worst part is if you don't talk about it, you go year to year mm -hmm. thinking everyone, either I'm the, the outcast 
or this is normal and what a miserable experience it is. Did you become a loner in school? Like, did you isolate, like Quentin said? Um, so, and did you have your invisible backpack that we say all the time, bringing it to school with you all the time? Yeah. Um, so growing up um, in North Attleboro, I definitely felt like a loner. Um, I definitely... I remember coming to school in North Attleboro and I met like a few people and it was great up until stuff started happening with my parents and it became very public. Like the Applebee's in North Attleboro had a wall dedicated to my stepfather. And then the next week when everything was on the news, it was all taken down overnight. Like we were shunned. Like we were like, nope, no one wants you here. Like you're bad. Like even though my dad was, my stepfather's amazing and he had an amazing career and whatnot. He was judged as soon as something went south. As soon as he said, I'm human, I have feelings, I have mental health issues, I have substance issues, I'm human. Like it was, no, no, no. You became part of that, Sean. I became part of that. And like, I was, girls were mean. I remember girls taking my yearbook at field day and writing nasty things in it. I remember like ditching class. I remember getting into arguments with girls. It it was bad. It like the bullying was so bad and I hated it. And I didn't want to go to school anymore. I didn't want to go there. And it's funny cuz like I've never as an adult dealt with substance issues ever like drugs or alcohol. I've never like I'm a person that would have two drinks a year socially. And I actually haven't drank in months because I hate the taste. And I'm like, why am I drinking socially? I don't even like, I don't drink at home. Why am I drinking? It's like, but it's funny because like as soon as you're like, oh yeah, like I'm not drinking, people are like, oh, do you have like a substance? No, I just don't drink. Yeah. Like alcohol is the only drug that if you avoid your somehow. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like weird. it's like, no, I just don't like the taste. But in eighth grade, and I was thinking about this the other day after we met, um, in eighth grade, I definitely had substance issues. Like I was drinking a ton. Eighth grade, because I left North Attleboro December of my freshman year. I was drinking so heavily in like in junior high, eighth grade, like blackout drunk. Um, I'd go to parties and I was hanging out with all the high schoolers. Like I remember people having to like call my mom and be like, she's passed out. I remember I went down a very dark road eighth grade year. And then it got to a point where the state stepped in and took me. And I thank God for that because I went and lived with family. I wasn't, I wasn't with some random family. I was with my family, but I was technically in state care. And, you know, it was the best thing. As soon as I went to New Bedford High, I felt like me again. It's so weird. And people are like, oh gosh. Like I remember telling the few people I still talk to in North Attleboro, I was going to New Bedford and they were like, oh God, like you're going there. Like it's terrible. That's terrible. They don't even know where it is. Yeah. They just hear these stories and they're like, oh my gosh, it's awful. And I'm like, no, like people are so nice. Everyone's like, because you're all on like the same page almost. Like you're coming from all these diverse backgrounds. Like you're, you're not the only one, like, and you don't feel like you're the only one. People are more outspoken in cities. Um, but it's funny. I actually ran into a girl um, about two years ago from high, like a girl I grew up with in North Attleboro. And she looked like she saw a ghost when she saw me and she stared at me and she goes, I'm so sorry. And I was like, what? And she was like, we were awful. This is what she was saying. We, we were awful to you. Good for her. Yeah. And it haunted her. Like, and she wasn't even the mean one. She was just like in the group. She just never stood up for me, but she never actually said anything to me. She was never mean to me, but she was like, we were awful to you. And I'm like, you know what? Like, thanks. But, and like, I actually ran to the leader of that little group, um, probably about six years ago when I moved back to Massachusetts and she had no wrecking, like she had no recollection of ever being mean to me. She actually came up to me at a bagels and cream and I had my daughter and 
she was like, oh my gosh, she's so beautiful. She looks just like you. Oh, like, did you move back? And I looked at her and I was kind of like stunned that she was talking to me. And she was like, uh, like kind of like, and I'm like, you don't remember, do you? And she was like, what do you mean? That's not unusual either. I was wondering if you could like uh, define the word bullying to you, because I think bullying is a word that it kind of now gets, it gets thrown out there all the time and uh, it gets misused, overused, uh, but in some cases it is, uh, you know, the right term. But yeah. to me, bullying is probably much different than what bullying would be to you than it is to him just because of growing up uh, differently. So I was wondering if you could do that. So to me, bullying is you're trying to make the person feel stupid, irrelevant, um, uneducated being you're putting them down like you want them to feel bad about themselves and you kind of like shun them away oh don't do that like oh you're so annoying or and it can be as little as that like oh you're so annoying or oh like or talking behind people's back saying things that aren't true um but for me it was it was really the isolation piece like i remember this group truly wanting to isolate me. And even the two friends that I had, my two best friends, they would kind of be like, oh, like, no, we don't have room for her. Or no, she can't come because, you know, like, and I actually remember one girl saying um, that I was going to become a druggie and like, we shouldn't be around her because, you know, like she's all around druggies, meaning my parents. And like, that's really hard. Um, and I remember one of the moms saying it to me, like, we just don't want so-and-so around you right now because your parents aren't making good decisions. And like, I wasn't making good decisions in eighth grade, um, but I was in eighth grade and people were putting this stamp on me. Like I should be making adult decisions. I had adult. Where do you think that line gets crossed? Like in Quentin's so right, you know, for, um, my time upbringing, um, it was almost like banter back and forth, um, not trying to hurt, not trying to hurt someone's feelings or to make them feel less. It was just almost like a normal way of speaking. So yeah. where does the line go, do you think, from how important the intent is? Like if I am trying to make you feel bad, that's different than me just talking or saying something. Um that I'm ignorant to realizing how it's going to make you feel, uh, as opposed to the persons that's trying to push to push your sensitivity buttons to make you feel not part of the group, or because this word is now being used, um, yeah. it, it's almost like we're still trying to define it, um, and it's you know how sometimes the reactions go too far, and then we forget the purpose is to slow this action down to help kids be kinder to each other. Well, I, and it's funny that you say like students or kids be that way to each other, but I think it actually starts at home. I mean, I know that you're asking me to define bullying, but I see it even with parents who are, there was a little girl at one of the schools and, um, she was actually bullying my daughter, like being very mean, very like saying nasty things to her. Um, like you make me feel like bad about myself because, and what was really happening, the little girl was angry that she came from a hard background. Mom and dad aren't in the picture. And when I would show up to the school, I, cause I'd volunteer I'd go play games with the kids like on parent days or whatever I'd volunteer for the field trips she was angry that she didn't have that it was a jealousy like I don't have a mom and dad here for me right now and she looked at my daughter like kind of like you have everything that I want and I remember one of the moms on the field trip saying because the little girl went into like a corner and like didn't like she felt left out and she said, the girls aren't like including me. And I said, honey, like you, like they keep asking you to play with them and you don't want to. And like, you look at kids and it's not simple. It's not so easy to define because it is a feeling. Um, yeah. 
but this little girl, and I had to say it to my daughter, I said, she's me. She's me 25 years ago. And my daughter was like, what do you mean? And I go, Reese, you know, like when I was your age, I was jealous of all the kids who had moms and dads showing up at pickup there. Like people were picking up their kids from school. People were showing up and doing the same thing, playing games and being at their recitals or their games or whatever. And when you don't have that as a child and you see other people have it, you're angry that you don't have it. And you should be angry. Like every child deserves that. And it's, I do think it's hard because you don't want to place the responsibility of children who have those things um, in a role of being a parent or an adult. So where they're picking up and being too overly empathetic, like it's not my daughter's responsibility to be an, an adult and be like mothering this girl because they're the same age. But I do think it's okay to say to your child, which I did, be sensitive to what she's going through. She feels like she needs, so if you need to like, if you see her sitting by herself and she's choosing not to sit with you guys because she's having a hard day, an overstimulating day because of the stressors at home, go sit with her. Even though you said, hey, come sit with us, it might be hard for her to pick herself up at the table and go walk over to you because there's five of you already sitting. And she chose to sit by herself, yes, but it's a lot easier for you to walk over and sit with her. And I think that's empathy. I think that like we are not teaching our kids how to be empathetic and sympathetic to people. And like I said, it's not their responsibilities to be a counselor at seven or eight, but teaching kindness and like pulling people in when you see them sitting by themselves. I do it even at work. Like even at work when I like am at the schools or I'm at my other job at the doctor's office, if I see people and they're like in their own bubble all day and they're not talking to anyone, I'll be like, hey, how are you? Like, it's as simple as that because that can be life changing. Um, when I went to like New Bedford, I had that. People were really kind to me and they wanted to get to know me. It's, it's very... I live in the suburbs and I kind of regret it if I'm being honest. I think we all have this big dream to like live in the suburbs and raise our kids in like good school systems and eight grade schools. And, but I feel like I was taught things through experiences that you can't teach here sometimes. Like you can't teach kids things that they don't see. And like, yeah, you can be robbed of innocence with seeing too much too soon, but you learn a lot. And I think Quentin and I, like when we, like our moms were both sick and when you grow up, like I was very much my mother's mom. And so I learned empathy at a very young age. Like I learned how to care for my mom at a very young age. And I would never want my kids to go through that. And I'm very grateful my kids have not had to go through that. But these kids are growing up with this, if you don't look like me, if you don't talk like me, if you don't wear clothes like me, if you don't have the phone that I have, if you don't have the backpack, I, the shoes, if you don't have the house that I have, why would I be friends with you? There's a lot of silly competition. Yeah. It's keeping up with the Jones and we see it even yeah. in ourselves as adults. I want I wanted to ask you to, to find the bullying world word because like when I was in middle school uh early high school like my friends would pick on me like friends do but they didn't know I was dealing with challenges at home so it would bother me way more um and I would get front but I I wouldn't call that bullying um but now when I when I got to college actually and um I didn't even I didn't tell you I was gonna bring this up because I didn't think of it until now I actually I played for a, a group of coaches that I would use that word bullying with because they repeatedly went out of their way to try and isolate me, put me down, make me feel uh, less than even when they knew I was having a tough time. They pulled me into meetings, uh, berated me just just repeatedly uh, for a whole year. And I, I thought it was interesting that that term I wouldn't I'd never apply it to the kids uh, my own age, but then I would apply it to the adults that I was around because of their uh, intentions to 
clearly uh, try and make me feel less than uh, other people and unappreciated. And it, it was just, I thought it was interesting that that can come from the adults to kids too. But I think that speaks to your point, Alexis, with it's really hard to put that on young kids. Yeah. And it's they do follow the example and copy what they see at home. And our example as adults is the best teacher or the most impactful uh, teaching that goes on, whether it's positive or negative. And that's maybe what I meant about intent, because the eight, nine, 10 year old, if they understood it, probably wouldn't have that intent. So it's a hard line. And empathy does come uh, from a learning experience, usually. And I think um, Quentin is more uh, natural to being empathetic than I had to learn that. And his mom was more that way because of her experience. So I, I do find the adults, we're, we're at fault as adults. And I hope we, I remember Quentin at the high school he went to first, um, they never wanted to get to the root of an issue that happened. And the kids would all get attached this word to their behavior across the board because they want to do the work to find out really where that came from, did it or whatever. It was the school's way of dealing with it. And I really believe 90% of kids have good hearts and, and probably all kids do, and we just need to bring it out in them. So I think you're, you're right on that teachable moment with kids on empathy and so on. Um, and depending on their home life, it gets influenced how well they take a teachable moment. Well, yesterday, it's funny. Um, my son learned it. He's five. So yesterday he had a very big learning experience. And so did this other boy. My daughter had a jamboree all day at mass premiere for basketball. And my son walked over to me and he said, he was in like, you know how they split the courts up. So for jamborees, cause there's so many schools and so many games, um, my son was playing on one side and my daughter's whole team, cause one was free. So one was a free court. The kids could like the siblings could go over and play. And he walks over to me and he goes, mom, this kid just said, I suck at basketball. And I'm like, Hmm, that's not nice. So when we were walking out like 30 minutes later, he points and he goes, that's the kid that said, I suck. The kid had to be like 15. And I'm like, what? So I walk up to the kid and I told my son, I said, go, go with your stepmom, go with, go with your sister. Like, I'm going to go talk to him. And Finley like walks behind me. Like, like he, I don't know what he thought was going to happen. And I walked up to the kid and I said, Hey, is your mom around? And he said, no, I got dropped off. And I said, did you say something to my son? And he goes, oh, and I go, you're not going to get in trouble. Did you say something to my son? And he said, yeah, I told him he sucked at basketball. I go, he's five. I go, you're clearly old enough to know better. And he looked at me and I said, do you have something to say to him? And he said, I'm sorry. He goes, to be honest, I didn't realize that he was only five. He goes, I thought he was like seven. And I was like, well, still wouldn't have been okay. Yeah. But like he is five. And so I said, can you guys, um, can you say sorry and shake hands? And he looked at my son and he said, I'm sorry, dude. And he like gave him a handshake. And then we start walking away and this kid comes up behind me and he says, uh, miss, does he want to get better at basketball? And I said, I'm sure he does. And he said, hold on. He's like, can I teach him this like hand trick? And he like did something with the ball, like really cool. And Finley started trying and it was like a teaching moment. Yeah. So many parents and I see, and my dad did it yesterday. So my, my son told my dad too, that this kid said this. And my dad's like, oh, ignore him. Like, cause that's the old way, right? Like don't get into confrontation, like suck it up. He didn't punch you in the face. Like it's fine. Right. But I actually, I actually think I get to say on that. I actually think that people, not everybody, and maybe half the people were more direct and it became a little confrontational but it was out in the open more. Now it's like everyone's tiptoeing around it and it takes someone like yourself to step up. Now the kid was totally accepting of your uh, mm -hmm. criticism or talking to him about it because I think the topic does get talk, uh, discussed more in school or at home than it mm -hmm. used to. Absolutely. But in general, I think back then, I mean, 
it's different now. Believe me, while your son is at or your daughter's playing at Mass Premier, we're out in the backyard doing conflict <laughs> resolution on the job. And I think that's something that's missing now. So that situation with your son would be taken care of because we always got taught by the older boys. Oh, and, yeah. But I've totally know, heard parents different. say, like, ignore it. Like, it's, and I hear that actually a lot. Like, yeah. ignore it. Don't worry about it. Like, it's fine. And it's like, but people, like, where the confrontation comes in, and I say this all the time, and I see it all the time. Like, people are like, oh, no, no, I don't want to start a problem. <clears throat> oh, no, no, no. I don't want to, like, stir the pot. Like, we're all people. We all have emotions. We all have mental health. We all have different levels of mental health, just like we all have different levels of physical health. Walking up to somebody and create a connection with them is not a bad thing. It's not a confrontational thing either. This child, I didn't yell at him and be like, did you say blah, 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 blah to my kid? Like, where I have seen parents do that. And it's like, mm, your approach is, this conversation is not going good by the first three words, right? Right. It's, how are you approaching that? And I always say, even in the school, I'm like, you're not going to get in trouble if you don't lie to me. Like, let's figure it out. Like, and when you allow a kid to repeat what they said and like not flip out, you're allowing them to be like humans. They're not supposed to know everything. He's whatever, 15, 14, 13, whatever age he was, he's not supposed to know everything. He should know that you don't talk that way. Yeah, but I, I can give you a, an example. So coaching high school where the opposing team was making comments about a couple of my players because of their faith. And they actually just had something happen um, in your area, a fan said something out at um, another person, too. And that was one of those times for me that I was seeing it handled within schools, which I had never really experienced before. And I, it was very, um, it was handled very well, um, professionally, calmly, tried to get everybody in the same room. But then the two schools, one school kind of just gave, uh, didn't really have discipline or accountability is probably the better word. Whereas the school I was at, the superintendent did hold the uh, other student accountable. So it's it's also, we're fighting each other sometimes on these issues too, on you're willing to go up to the young man and have that conversation. And maybe half the other parents wouldn't even stop and think of it. Or be aware that your son actually was comfortable to say it to you. Yes. I think, too, that there there's, needs to be, because um, I used to get picked on for my weight, you know, different stuff, what was going on. And I think there needs to be a nice uh, balance of growing up where the, the ignore it should be like, you know, think about it, process it, but then let it go. Don't just, you know. It completely ignore it, but um, I wish that I learned to not let what other people say affect me more. I wish that I was able to to do both. I think there's a, a, a happy medium between, you know, you don't always want to be uh, confronting people all the time uh, about no. stuff that bothers you, but you also want to be able to, you know, let it go. Maybe they're not going to change. They're not going to listen. Like if that boy didn't take the... Uh, criticism so well that it might have been a different uh path where then you have to let it go yeah were there and any I, other parents around alexis when you were talking to the young man there was there was like four parents over what there what was their reaction they they all smiled after the whole interaction they all smiled it wasn't like what is she doing why is she talking to him like it was a very like that was that was, was like there a part of you that felt like they were glad you dealt with it yeah. As opposed to, you yeah. know, like it's not I mean, like they jumped in to support, right? It's funny because I feel like that's a common reaction yes. of parents when, I mean, I've coached before. I've, I'm very involved in like my community and it's, I do feel like I, I get that reaction a lot. Like people don't want to deal with things and it's like, oh, thanks for dealing with that because I did not want to handle that. Or oh, I'm happy you said something so I didn't freak out. And it's like, 
and you said like good thing that your kid felt comfortable enough to tell you. I feel like a lot of kids even like I had this reaction, like with certain family members, like I knew who not to go up to if I wanted to be coddled, right? Like right. you're not going to go up to like a parent who's like, oh, get over yourself, rub some dirt in it. Like, but you're going to go up to the parent who's going to give you a hug and say, I'm sorry, that means you feel that way. And like, Quentin always brings up that the referees told me his arm might be broken playing in a uh, travel game as a young kid. And I said, oh, he's probably fine. It was snapped in that. <laughs> so I'm, I, you know, it's the culture you grew up with a lot of times. But so you, you experience your um, the bullying, and you still work through that. Uh, you changed schools and found a little more comfort in the arena that you were in. So then, after high school, after graduation, um, how were things then? Like now, you're taking the next step as a, a person going on to hopefully following a career or education? So I didn't. Um, so, I mean, I went to, I started Freiburg Academy. I found my, my biological father um, when I was in New Bedford High and I met my father for the first time at 16 and I moved to Chatham, New Hampshire. And I started going to school at Freiburg Academy, which is a boarding school, a very nice boarding school up in Maine. And I lived with my father until I turned 18, which was my junior year. Um, my father and I did not get along. Um, he very, he was very militant. And so I moved out my junior year and I moved in with a friend that I had met at Freiburg Academy. I moved in with her family. They were from Massachusetts. Her dad was a doctor and um, a psychiatrist. And so I didn't have the normal, where am I going to go to school? Where am I going to apply? Because it was more, where am I going to live? What am I going to do? And I moved back to Massachusetts after graduating. And I lived with a friend for a little bit. She was hanging out with questionable people. And I actually ended up moving in with my stepfather. Um, he had gotten clean and sober. And he was clean and sober like four years at this point. And um, he was remarried. And whatnot. Um, I went into school. I went for trade school. Um, I graduated in May of 13. I started trade school in August of 13 and I graduated in May of 14. I got married. Um, I got divorced. I had kids. Um, and I really just worked, worked like a normal person. Like, and then about a year ago, I went back to school for psych. I'm going to be graduating next year. I taking classes on and off for two years and then went back full-time last year. Um, and especially after my mom died, um, which was related to mental health issues, um, I realized I wanted to do more with my life. Like I had this pull, like, and I think when you have a significant loss, especially like the way I lost her, um, which was from addiction, like she overdosed, um, and, it was ruled um, undetermined whether it was a suicide or not, but we think it was. Um, you, it's like weird. Like you can go into like a dump, like like a like a. I don't want to say a dump, but like you can go into this. Like you can fall into this pit of like being angry and sad, and like don't get me wrong. Like I have emotional days where I'm like, oh, that's like that's heavy, right? It's heavy when you lose any parent. It's heavy. But like I've had a, this pull since she died that I'm like made to do more with my life, that I'm made to be with kids and I'm made to like help kids realize like you don't have to be a product of your environment. Like you can be the exception. You don't like and you see like adults say this all the time, like, oh, well, my dad did this. And it's like almost like an excuse to why you don't have to be better than what you came from. And that's why I started working in the schools and being around kids. And I really I always say like, I want to be with behavioral. I want to be with behavioral. I want to be with behavioral. Nine times out of 10, those kids who are behavioral are coming from a very hard background. Yeah, and I found it interesting what you just said on, because uh, Quentin will say this to me a lot. And I think he feels, and I'm kind of curious how you felt, the pressure of, um, and when, you know, Cindy passing, Quentin, definitely became more focused on anything particular. He was still trying to figure that out, but he really 
was focused on being having a productive day. And then he found the value in it, um, which he can speak to if he, if he wishes. But I, I found you were just saying exactly what Quentin had said, had said to me several times. Yeah, I actually said it the other night because I was so overwhelmed that I was wasting uh, time, that I was getting stressed out. But I think when you lose a parent, it gives you that um, sense of that life is not permanent and that you're here for you know a short amount of time. And then you realize that it can be taken away at any moment. Or um, like for me, it was looking at the dementia thing. It was... You know, she didn't even know when it was going to be taken away. And then so I was like, you know, if I'm 45 and that happens to me, like, I want to make sure I get all these things done before uh, that happens. But it's it's also a difficult way to live because then you're I constantly like if I waste time, I my brain like I can't function. So now so it's I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of tough. Well, it's it's something I relate to as well. But I sat here with Quentin and a week ago Monday. Um, I can remember the whole thing with Quentin being overwhelmed and me thinking, oh, my God, that's me. Like, I'm watching him, um, the, all this emotion coming out and the intensity of it was real. And I was able to, and I couldn't do this not too long ago, but I was able to watch him and listen and process it myself instead of telling him, oh, it's not, you know, no, you're not really feeling that, or the things I would have done as a younger parent. But now I watched him and I said, well, you know, I didn't have my father involved in my life at all. And I'm sure there's stuff that we never talked about back then, right? That you just uh, suck it up. I had a good Irish mom and she had to deal with four kids. That's where all her time was. And she <laughs> did a wonderful job giving us possibilities which is what I'm always grateful for. But I'm watching Quentin, and I'm like, I know where that comes from. And it was, I didn't feel good about it, but it was, it made me understand it. I I struggle with that too, what Quentin was saying. Like, if you don't do something with your day, you almost feel like you wasted it. And like, I'm, so I'm assuming your mom passed when she was 45 because you said 45. Oh, she, she was, she 50. got sick when she yeah. was 43 okay. and 53 when she passed. Yeah. Okay. So my mom was 48 and those are very young ages, 53 and 48 and dementia is taking away your time before you're even gone. Right. Yeah. Like right. it's, it's stealing your time. And we really lost a lot of, um, I always tell Quentin, my biggest regret is I didn't take more pictures. I didn't take, you know, just, it wasn't, uh, my way of thinking it was my fault, but, um, you're right. He was a young teenager at best when she was real, real sick. I say that too. I wish I'd taken more pictures and like spent more time and had more conversations and asked more questions. And I think that's why we don't waste our days. Like I have, I am way too ambitious. I say this to myself all the time. Like you are way too ambitious. Slow down. What is that song? Um, Vienna. No, no, Slow yeah. down, you're doing fine. Well, I, I, I had a girl tell me in college, uh, slow down, you crazy child. You're too ambitious for a juvenile. It was Billy Joel's song. And yes. I, so so I've always been like that and didn't yes. even uh, acknowledge it until I'm in my sick, well, earlier. But I, I don't sleep much, which I have to do a better job of. Quentin's focus has changed his whole lifestyle, which is, like he said, it can be really tough at times. And someone actually said to me about you the first time, um, you'll know who I'm talking about. I walked across the street just to introduce myself. And he said, yeah, she's very focused. You can't tell her what to do. She's She gets focused on something and goes for it. And um, I see a My lot stepfather. of <laughs> with it. You know what I mean? Yep. And um, it was a compliment um, because everyone's different. I love Quentin's passion right now. I also know it's hard to be that way. It is. Um, but that is my, I, we, we, we agree on the song. The song is very much my anthem. And it's, oh, that is the same song you were saying? It is. It's Vienna by Billy Joel. Yeah. And wow. um, it says, you can't be all that you need to be before your time. Yeah. And that's, but that's what you're chasing. And I always say that, like, your days are limited. We're all, what is that thing that you 
turnover and the sands running. That's our life. Our whole life is sand running every day. And it's like, how are you going to want to be remembered? Like, yeah, I like that um, you are, and Quentin is very philosophical at younger ages. Um, I think I was always like that with music being a big calming influence for me um, because you could relate to the words. And yeah. maybe that song was something you wish you had or wanted to be and you weren't at that time and it helped you aspire to being better. Um, oh, yeah. But I, I think when you talk, so now now you're, uh, now you know what you want to do with your life career-wise. So and I'm actually still debating on what I'm doing my master's in. Um, I haven't decided if I wanted to go into marriage and family therapy or if I wanted to go into school therapy. I mean, I all I know is kids need to realize like this is not this is not it. What you're born into and where you're brought up, this is a this is a very short glimpse of life that yeah, it's going to mold you into like your perspective of things. But this isn't the end all be all. If your mom and dad are drug addicts, if your parents are struggling with mental health, it does not mean that you're going to also. Um like I said, I never have had those experiences that my parents have had. I mean, you can choose better. I I say it all the time. Like I was brought up from dead weeds. You can't grow there. Like that soil has been used up. It's like you can't plant anything in there. The soil's hard. It's not going to loosen. You're not going to be able to grow anything there. So you have to like replant yourself and go on with your life. And you can't like, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying push it down and don't confront it. I was telling you, I went to a place called Onsite last year. It's um, a program out of Tennessee. It's called, they have a program called Heal Healing Trauma and it's intense therapy. It's for five days. It's not inpatient. It's not a hospital. These are elite people. Like I sat in rooms, they have 50 people come in. They split you up by eights and you go in and they separate you into these groups and you sign non-disclosures because these are judges. These are lawyers. These are cops. These are people that you look at and you're like, they have it together. They have it all. Like they know everything. Like these are people and they have such heavy trauma. And what I learned at the end of it, especially looking at some of the judges, like there was two judges, there was a few doctors and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at them and I'm like, wow, you guys went through all of that and you picked yourself up and you became all of this. Well, Does that's it mean that part about adversity, right? It, adversity can go one way or the other, but it does make you stronger. And um, if you take that opportunity to embrace that difficult moment or get up off the mat, you know, all these cliches that are true, then you do look at the world different and the little things stop bothering you because you know what hard really is. And it's all relative to each other. And once you know what hard is, um, the rest of things, it turns into gratitude for what you have. And I think that's a, a great thing for, um, I'd love to see you around teenagers because I think that's, not that I'm dictating it, but that's the age where I think it's really hard for young people for all the reasons that it's tough being a teenager. The goal is to create a program that has some of the things that I learned at on-site for healing trauma to incorporate that into a program where young adults in high school, junior high, can really start to understand what normal is, that this isn't the end-all be-all. Like you have these kids, they're in these schools for 13 years, K through 12, and it's in a fishbowl. You're in a fishbowl. You're in like such a tiny coordinate of the world. This isn't it. Yeah you're going to be so much bigger than this. And that's what kids really need to start realizing. I listen to, um, I, well, I listen to a lot of speakers. I listen to, um, I, your stepfather came to my school when I was a sophomore in high school. And I, before I knew you or him, I said to you that he was, I really enjoyed listening to him, but I was listening to, um, Inky Johnson, who's a big time, um, uh, speaker. Yeah. He played football for Tennessee and then he, uh, made a hit and he became paralyzed. And one of the things he talks about is when you go from, you know, someone who you used to be to who you want to be, sometimes it's not so much learning new things, but you almost have to take a couple steps back and unlearn all these things that you were taught growing up. Mm -hmm. And if that's not 
how you want to be or how you want your life to live, uh, how you want to live your life. So for me, I not that I was taught anything, but I had learned to behave in a way that I didn't want to anymore. So I kind of have now had to backtrack on a lot of things and kind of start over and build kind of from the ground up a new personality of who I actually want to be. And that goes with what you said, too, because you're now telling you want young people to know that as big as this moment feels, as big as this mountain seems to have to be able to climb over it, it's just a snapshot in time. And I think uh, I've seen Quentin adjust his social world and uh, his view of the world. Put it, I think perspective gets better, which is for young people. I mean, I wish I had that emotional intelligence at a younger age. And I think if you could get your messaging across to people when they're younger during those really important years, um, you know, we're, we're always expecting our kids to know what they want to do the rest of their life at 18 when they're making that educational jump, right? There's your fishbowl. And we know plenty of kids through Quentin's friends that didn't go to school. They're doing great. You know, if half the other kids are trying to figure it out at school and okay. I yeah, yeah. I, I school is I don't get it, but <laughs> it's just it's weird how they make you think. And social media for my age group makes this five times more difficult, where yeah. everything in high school gets multiplied by three. With now, when you go home and leave school, you're still around. Like those people are still right at your fingertips, yeah. texting you. Uh, you're looking at what everyone's doing, so it makes it even. It's not more challenging, but it's different challenges. That's what you always okay. tell me. So, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. with the bullying becoming, at least it's out there, you know, it's really exposed as a topic now. Um, yeah. And you're, you're seeing it from different views, your own experience. You have young children and you work around schools. So, you really yeah. have a unique view of this. Like, what would be, say, two suggestions you would have? on ways for schools to preemptively discuss this with young people that it's productive? I think a lot of schools, and I've seen this, um, they feel like these kids are more innocent than they are. Um, they don't want to talk about it. Like, unless it's brought into their office and this is what's happening, like, and I work with very little kids. So this isn't going to be a huge topic at like from I'm saying this as like my daughter gets older, I'm seeing it. Um, I'm saying it from my personal experience being this student. No one wants to talk about it unless it's in their office and parents are complaining. And I have started talking about like what I would want to be a part of this program. And people are like, oh, do you think schools would accept you to say that? Like, oh, like, you know, like, like when you start saying the statistics of kids who are bullied, the teen suicide is high, the highest it's ever been in our nation. Like it's an, it's all, it's heartbreaking, but it's like these schools don't want to like get in front of it and have somebody come in and be like, Hey, like, like right now, like this isn't it. This, this is a very short glimpse. This is a pivotal moment for you because it's impactful and it's going to be with you for the rest of your life. You'll remember these moments for the rest of your life, but this isn't the end. And when you're talking about bullying, it's like the schools don't really want to touch it. Like they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to have speakers come in and be like, oh, and it's, and I think it's really because they think we're saying something these kids don't know, but these kids know way more than we think they know. And That's they're- an excellent point. I think my frustration once we dove into this and mm -hmm. I didn't even know where it was going. I mean, this is- Quentin's idea to do this and so on. And he he um, is very focused on what he wants. And now I'm learning more about it. And one of my frustrations is with the schools because I know it's all sensitive. But th again, that's why the uncomfortable silence exists because it's people should be addressing these. The most sensitive of issues are the most impactful. And those are the ones that should be the first ones in young people's development to get addressed, to make them comfortable discussing their issues, knowing where to go get help, be willing to talk about it, and having their peer group accepting of it. And your message goes for more than just bullying. It goes for the that this isn't the end. This is just, it goes for the same thing that I talk about with 
de dealing with depression and that it's not the end. It goes the same thing for, you know, addiction. Like it's that message that it can get better is useful to all kids, not just kids who may be getting bullied. So there's really no reason that, I mean, there probably is a reason, but there shouldn't be a reason that schools are avoiding this conversation. Yeah, I walk, I walk on eggshells on this, to be honest with you. I'm really disappointed. The numbers are going up, teenage suicide. You can't argue the numbers. They can play with the reason, but the, the most valued treasure in our world, they're killing themselves at a higher rate than ever before. That should be enough right there to say this is the priority. And I think um, they're going to have to, someone's going to stand up. I, I really admire you for being willing to have by sharing your story, it gives some real um, tangible example of what someone can go through and how they can be productive and end up on the correct side of it. So that gives hope to a lot of people by you sharing it. Well, I, these teachers and these schools have these kids 35 hours a week. And that's if the kid doesn't do sports or club. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of influence time. And I had a teacher, Nancy Dorrance, um, I went to community school. I was in second grade or fourth grade. I can't remember. No, I think I was in fourth grade. And she came into my class. She was a school nurse. She came into my class um, three days after my dad was all over the news for being arrested with heroin possession. She came into my class and sat down with very young children. And she said, my daughter's an addict. What Alexis's dad was just in trouble for, because these kids all knew, because it was all of the news. Everyone knew I was getting bullied for that. And she came into my classroom and she said, My family's going through something very similar. The only reason it's not on the news is because we're not famous or like we haven't, like we're not pro athletes or whatever. And it was probably the most impactful thing a school admissions person has ever done for me. And I remember it to this day. And maybe for those other kids too. Yeah. And in the class. And if she could do that back then, why, why, like, everyone knows that, like, drugs and like everything's happening and like parents are addicted and more grandparents are raising their grandchildren than ever before. So, why aren't we talking about it so these kids don't feel so alone? Our suburbs are now like the cities were when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, not too many households have two parents that are really involved with their kids because they have to work. I'm, I'm not just not living under the same roof, but they're so busy. And, you know, the schools are walking. It's not that I never blame the teachers because they're not making the decisions as to what's done in class. But um, I certainly remember the teachers that either um, the nun that gave me a whack on the back of the head, head uh, <laughs> But they were right and made me think twice about my behavior or more importantly, the person that um, even in sports, a referee that said, take a deep breath. You know, you're a little out of control. And we, you know, our hope is to get to talk to groups and Quentin does a great job communicating to younger people in a way that they wouldn't want to hear from me. You know, they wouldn't be as apt to listen. And I'm good with that. It depends on the, the group. And I think that that conversation has to be accepted. And then the, the schools offer whatever um, I think the parents demand. Well, the parents have to get more involved. I, I do say that parents, I think every parent should become a sub. Honestly, I swear, I say it all the time. I think every parent should go into a school. It is, you have 20 kids per classroom. And like, usually each classroom has a few paras and the main teacher, but this is a lot of pressure for our teachers too. This is a lot on them. Yes. And I mean, they, most of them love their job and they're showing up for the right reasons. And I admire them for that, but this is a lot. And I have people ask me all the time. They're like, Oh, does, does Reese ride the bus? Like, blah, blah. and I say, no, I pick up my kids and I drop them off. I think those, and, and there's a reason for that. I think the most powerful time that you can talk to your kids is before school setting them off on a good day. Like, I love you. Learn something. I can't wait to see you after school. Picking them up from school. How was your day? What did you learn? 
and you give them an opportunity where they're kind of stuck with you in a car. They're not going to ride on the roof. They're going to be right next to you, right? Or like in the back seat. And you have an opportunity to talk to them about their day. That's an opportunity. Like, yeah. I wouldn't give that up. Like, being in the car with your kid is the most powerful time to talk to them, especially if it's one-on-one. -on -one. Also, another time is, I hear people say it all the time, like, we don't eat dinner at the table. Why? Being at the table, there's no electronics allowed. Like, sit down, talk to your kids. How was their day? Those are the three biggest times and points in the day that you can talk to your kid and have that. Yeah, I do feel for the teachers. Quinton's had some great uh, teaching experiences, you know, but he lived through the COVID time. And, yeah. so, you know, Quinton says it all the time. He never really, the education wasn't the same during those years. Um, and that's, well, I'm not there, was, there wasn't. I, yeah. I, I, I didn't do anything for two years of high school. And like, I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just saying it's, I mean, we weren't prepared, you know, whatever the reasons no are, one was, yeah. out of my control, but I never blame the teachers. I think um, it's, or, I agree with you, it's an extremely difficult job, and it would be nice for everyone to wear the other person's shoes once in a while, no matter what the topic, but um, I think having Quinton was a junior and senior in high school, right? Yeah, I lost half my junior year, we were out, and then my old senior year, we, teachers opted out because they kids at home so luck of the draw like five of my teachers weren't coming into school so I would sit in the literally sit in the auditorium all day uh just doing nothing and this is very high six, school yeah I took my own daughter out um I homeschooled her um half yeah. of kindergarten until they went back into school because I don't know any five-year-old that can learn how to write remote <laughs> I mean they didn't even know how to turn on their own computer um but yeah, it's very challenging job. The issue, right, that I see with schools right now, it's not the teachers. Like all the teachers I've ever had are, I mean, to be a teacher, you have to be pretty willing because I don't know why else you'd be a teacher. It's not the paycheck. It's not, you know, it's, but it's the, the way the schools go about certain things where you're really, you're not supposed to talk about a lot of things in the classroom. And then the stuff they teach is not so much about life it's more you know we're gonna stick to math or stick to english and i think a balance of that would be a little better where even simple stuff like i i have no idea how to do my taxes now at age 20 and stuff like yeah. that which is a life skill but it also teaches you to do stuff that you're not comfortable with and but there's just a lot of stuff that i think the the way that the system is if you're not getting that at home now you're not getting it in school either yeah a lot I, I, of pressure on kids I there don't know where all this came from, Alexis. I um, I never had it or felt it, and I wasn't from uh, Ozzy and Harry at home either. Um, but I always felt I knew people cared about me. I wasn't worried about um things, and it's not that I was a stronger person than Quentin. He's the culture is different, and I always worry about the kids because so we do a little basketball program where there's probably 200 to 250 kids involved. And we're always talking about looking at the kids as they come in. And we now try to go over to them. How's it going? Just to, to your point earlier about engaging with them. And um, you, when I coached at a high school, that everyone's sitting on the bench. They're not talking. They're on their phones to someone else. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, I, I totally agree. It's so important to just make a young person feel engaged and you bridge that gap between adult and, you know, the person that hopefully can help you when you run into that challenge. Absolutely. And one thing I do want to say is, you know, you can look at somebody and clearly see if something physically, not always, like if it's internal, but like you can look at somebody and be like, wow, like they're limping, something's wrong with their leg something wrong with their ankle or something, you know what I mean? Or, oh, they're not writing with that arm today. Something must be wrong. When it comes to mental health, you can't see it. You can't see it. But if you look long enough and you start, even to your friends, your neighbor, whatever, you see somebody's not going outside and doing the garden bed anymore, like that they used to do. Why? Like might be because they're sad or it might be because something happened. Like go check on people. It's, even like with my own dad, like we'll like send like text back. I'm grown now. I'm out of the house, obviously. And 
like I'll send him text messages here and there. If he doesn't answer me, like I'll call him the next day and be like, mm, what are you doing? Nothing. Oh, okay. Well, well, like it's, you really do have to like reach out to people, even if it's the silliest thing, or like, if you see that they're just not. And I look at these kids when I'm in school, I look at my own kids and I can tell if I look at them long enough, if something's off, like the other day, my daughter came home, she was really quiet. She sat on the couch. She wasn't really like talking to me a lot. And I said, what's wrong? And she was like, oh, so-and-so kind of like embarrassed me on recess day. I'm not mad at the person who embarrassed her. Like, cause I'm sure it was innocent and they didn't mean to, but like we talked about it and like, those are real feelings and kids need time. And like, they need your time. Like your friends need your time. Your family needs your time. Your kids need your time. And it's a lot. So make sure you find time for yourself too. But take the time and look at the people around you because this is a very difficult time. Like coming out of COVID, the economy is not good. Like there's a lot of triggering factors. Like the suicide rate is really high right now. Clearly there's something going on in our world and the addiction and like everything going on. But take time and look around because it's really going to be the community that like puts everything together like yeah. the best. Yeah, no, you're right. We do need to group together instead of not being so much narcissistic, but just we got to get outside our own selves and um, look after each other a little more because the children don't go into that uh, home with that, um, whether it's sitting at the table having dinner, or it's just, it's just not like that anymore. So we need to help each other out more. But we really appreciate you coming on. I think um, the first time I met you was on a phone call and yeah. it's kind of ironic. Some of the things that happened from there, uh, both my parents were from New Bedford. Uh, there were like four or five yep. similarities. And I'm saying, oh, okay. yes. you were across the street. Lydia and I were working yeah. across. When you call. That is so weird. Across <laughs> from your stepfather. And the uh, customer pointed it out. And then actually the last one, another person, when we were at the basketball practice, um, they knew what we did. I wear my uncomfortable silent shirt sometimes. And he said, oh, a friend of mine's going on a podcast. It was you. Oh, my goodness. That's funny. So that, that was interesting, too. But we really appreciate you sharing yourself with us. Um, it's great that you're doing so well. I'm really happy for you. Thank you. And I'm happy for your children, too, because they do have a, a mom that's directly involved with their lives and is those two kids have a great opportunity to do well in our culture. So thank Each you. Each so generation much. a little better than the last, right? Always the getting better, hopefully. 